Nick Lorraine is a creative director and co-founder of Oliver Grace, a creative studio in Melbourne. Nick, welcome to the Brand Tune podcast. Hi, Shireen. Lovely to see you. Great. Well, tell us a bit more about yourself, your background, how you come to be here. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I, I'm Nick. I'm the, as you say, the creative director of Oliver Grace. We're a small boutique studio um, based in Melbourne. Um, but you can probably tell from the, the accent that uh, that's not my, you know, origin. Um, I'm from London originally, um, but I've been in Australia now for about eight years. Um, and I think I have uh, trodden, you know, the well-trodden path of starting out as a graphic designer and, um, you know, slowly sort of self-educating my way to the role of perhaps brand strategist or creative director and um, done a few things along the way, worn a few, few hats and uh, yeah, it's uh, still going in terms of the journey. Great. So when you design brands for companies, say it's a startup or something, what is your process? Um, well, I think uh, probably the first thing to say is that, um, you know, like, like everyone else, I, I've read lots of books on, you know, the best processes and, and the best steps to cover. Yeah. But the truth is, is that every, every client and every project has a, you know, a unique aspect to it. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's our job really to, to listen hard to what an organization or an individual is trying to achieve and, and look at the toolkit that we've got and, and see what's going to work best for those guys. So there's, there's obviously key areas that we're going to cover. Um, but, you know, typically, um, you know, our first job is to understand what they think branding means. I think that, you know, as designers and brand people can get, you know, quite esoteric with this stuff. And when someone hires a, a branding agency, perhaps it's the first time they've ever done that. So, you know, the, the, our first role is really to dig into, I guess, their objectives. And that obviously bleeds into, you know, the, the business strategy space in some conversations. And um, we might leverage um, a framework like objective and key results um, or something like that so that we can kind of benchmark where we're at and where we're hoping to get to in, in a year's time. Um, then we'll uh, look at their market. And if we, if we don't know anything about their industry, um, again, it's our responsibility to, as quickly as possible, try and educate ourselves and understand as much as we can around their, their competitor set and, um, you know, things that might um, stand them out from the crowd. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess one thing to say about um, our little agency is that we're typically not doing a, a branding piece in isolation. It's usually adjacent or slightly overlapping, you know, a website design or sort of a, you know, a big digital touch point um, that we might be looking at as well. So there's usually a few plates being spun at the same time. And we're, I guess, just trying to make sure that they're all, um, you know, heading in the right direction, um, you know, and on the same track. Um, so, yeah, I mean, apart from that, you know, all the usual stuff as we get into the back branding process, positioning, um, you know, creating that strategy as, as quickly as possible. Um, asking the big questions, um, you know, what, what's the in intentional brand image we're trying to create here? Um, what's our high expectation customer? Uh, that, that's a term that we use quite a lot um, that I picked up from, um, you know, Julie Supan, who's, who's, you know, a, a real loud voice in this space, especially in, in terms of digital first branding. Um, so we'll try and isolate, you know, that primary persona that we've got to get it right for first. Um, and then talk about, you know, what do we stand for? Um, you know, have we really got a point of difference here um, before 
obviously diving into uh, brand identity. And, you know, that's when I guess, you know, the designers get the candy thereafter and they get to do all the, uh, the visual creative stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's, I think, our process in a nutshell. Um, so if somebody's starting something, usually they feel there's something wrong out there and that they can improve on. Is that right? <clears throat> so. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, well, there's there's a couple of sort of classic situations, either that, you know, it's, it's a brand new entity that, that doesn't have an identity and, and they feel that, you know, it is an appropriate time to bring this um, thing to life and, you know, it requires, you know, a brand to do so. Or as you say, um, there's an issue. And I guess, you know, our, our job early in the uh, journey is to try and identify what they think that issue is. Well, what is a brand to you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what, is, what is a brand to me? Um, I, you know, that, that's, that's uh, an interesting question. I wondered if you might ask this. So, you know, a, a brand for us, I guess, you know, the classic answer is, is it's uh, the sum, um, you know, of all the feelings and, uh, you know, visions that spring to mind when one um, hears the name of uh, a given entity or company. Um, so it's, it, it's it's an emotion, I, I suppose, more than anything. And yeah, absolutely, every every organisation, if they're taking things seriously, does need to have a brand that they're managing and, and leveraging um, to achieve their goals. So, how do you then tackle differentiation and distinctiveness so that they can stand out? What what do you focus on in doing that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I suppose the first thing to say is, um, you know, I, I'm certainly a believer that. Uh, distinctive assets win out um, over this idea of differentiation. And I think that, um, you know, the ideas that have come out of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and the research that the, those guys have conducted have shown very clearly that, um, you know, producing unique identifying characteristics, you know, make it far easier for consumers to notice, notice and recognize and recall and, of course, buy the brand. Um, so, you know, I think that that's front of mind and I, I will be honest, I think, you know, for a long time, um, I was hung up on this idea of differentiation, like a lot of people. And I think that, um, this idea of a unique selling point is, is, is something that, you know, I came across quite early in my career and was, you know, part of my playbook for a long time, you know, trying to understand what makes you different. Um, but yeah, you know, as I said, very much a convert now. And I think that front of mind is creating a distinctive um, brand that can, you know, be remembered uh, later and recalled easily. Um, that being said, I think, um, particularly with some of the newer technology companies that we're working with, where they, in some cases, are, if they're to be believed, creating technology or offerings that are really unique, you know, they are building stuff for the first time. I think it is valuable to um, try and articulate what it is that they're creating. And if they've got a particular type of customer that is also very tech savvy and looking for certain um, you know, aspects of the product or, or what have you, um, it's worth talking about. Um, and I would say that you know, a new technology offering is probably quite different to a, a washing powder <laughs> in a supermarket. Yes, so, of course. Um, yeah. you know, I, think, I think you have to you know, go case by case on this stuff and yeah. not be too binary on your view between the two yeah so you would position um almost any service or tech presumably so that it's got some unique attributes that people associate with it is that right i think if, if it's genuine i think you know i think that um 
if we're running, for example, if we're running a brand discovery workshop with a, with a set of clients, um, I'll always ask the unique question uh, or the uniqueness question. I'll always say, you know, one aspect of positioning in some people's eyes is, is this question of, do you have something that is completely ownable by you? Um, but as they, you know, set about writing whatever they think their unique point is on a post-it note, I'll, I'll prime them by saying, well, let's just, let's just imagine that your competitor is in the next boardroom doing exactly the same thing. Um, and I want you to think about that. And whatever you write on that post-it note, you, you know, you, you genuinely need to be able to claim is only yours and makes you unique. And uh, yeah, that often creates an interesting conversation. Right. Yeah, the way I view it is that if you put together two or three um, ways in which you are going to pro progress the business, you're unlikely to be exactly the same as a competitor and everything you do is going to be guided by, for example, I want something that's simple to understand, not legally. So, you know, everything I do is trying to work out, is it actually understandable by people? It doesn't matter to me that other law firms are also trying to do the same because this is one of my aspirations and the other is to include um, knowledge of say branding and marketing, not just law. So if you choose two or three things that you are going to focus on, then that's your positioning. It doesn't need to be unique so much as about what you are, I guess, yeah. to associate with you, your brand. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, maybe something else worth, worth mentioning is that, um, in my opinion, at least, you know, strong brands do emanate from within an organization outwards. And I think that um, if you've got your, your salespeople or in, indeed everyone in the business banging the same drum very loudly and, and saying the same things over and over again, um, that, you know, they will, they will believe that. And for example, you know, the technology uh, scenario that I, I mentioned, um, if there is a succinct, clever way to articulate something that's quite technical, that, that all of the team can repeat every time they're in a sales situation, then that, um, you know, talks to a point of difference. But I suppose also becomes a distinctive asset because it's, uh, you know, a little soundbite or, or something that becomes memorable over time. Yeah, especially. Um, so yeah, go for it. Sorry. Yeah, especially if you can create a tagline that's sort of protectable, um, you know, like yeah. just do it or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I used to work in a, a product, a digital product studio, and we had this line that was um, find the shortest route. And it was just so memorable. And, you know, the whole hundred strong organization would remember it because we'd say it at every all hands. And um, after a while, the clients started saying it as well. So, <laughs> That's when you know you're onto something, I would suggest. Yeah. So how do you actually um, come to design the visual identity? What's your approach? Yeah, sure. So um, without going into obviously the technical detail of sitting down and, and designing a logo, uh, I guess there's some key principles that we, we try and abide by. So the key thing is it's got to be appropriate, I think. Um, and... Um, I didn't actually go to uh, art school or university for a huge amount of time. I'm, I'm pretty much self-taught from, you know, landing my first gig at a design studio as a young person. And I think that that's given me a certain mindset, which is, um, you know, really, really be focused on the client and what, the, what they're trying to achieve rather than just trying to express your own style too much. 
And I, you know, I look at the organization and I look at the environment in which they're operating and I try to come up with an appropriate solution. And, you know, that idea is stolen straight from Massimo Vignelli, you know, one of my what, heroes who talks about this all the time. And, you know, it is the idea that if, if you do, if you come to an appropriate solution, it will transcend any issue of style and you, you'll get a happy client pretty quickly. Um, so that's front of mind. Um, it's good to ask the client what they're expecting. It sounds simple, but um, quite often they'll come in the room with, you know, a half-baked idea or, or some, you know, it, they're the experts in their industry. You know, they should know more than anyone kind of what might be appropriate. So um, as designers, I think it's really important to listen, listen hard. Um, and then as you get into the creative process, um, obviously the job is to bring to life the positioning strategy. Um, we're, we're emotional animals and the visual cues, I guess, are the most visceral things that we can, um, you know, react to. Um, so we'll be looking basically to create, I guess, a timeless identity, which sounds cheesy, but it's true. You know, I picked up um, a logo modernism book from Tashin the other day. It's like the biggest book I've ever bought in my life. And it's got these simple icon logos that could have been designed yesterday, but some of them go back, you know, 60, 70 years. And that's what I'm always aiming for. Something that's completely timeless, um, really, really flexible. Uh, you know, I should imagine that when some of those logos were designed all those years ago, they, they never dreamed that it would end up on a, you know, a social media avatar or something like that. So why shouldn't we be thinking about how a logo might be applied to the metaverse or whatever, yeah. you know application might come next so you know timeless is probably front of mind um so naturally can, you, can yeah. you just give a couple of examples of those timeless logos that you came across in that book yeah yeah absolutely um well i think you know the, the beauty of that particular book is that um it's it's basically a singular format for many many pages of just tiny tiny little icons and you know some of my favorite are things like you know the old kodak little icon which has just existed forever um you know as, as just that little small k um despite the uh misfortune of the actual company you know yeah. the, the logo certainly stood the test of time um so that was that was definitely one that stood out but there was there's heaps of really obscure ones in there there was you know ones that have long gone and you know uh, probably aren't companies anymore but as i said you know the you know, i think there was like a canadian brewery which had, had this wonderful um you know little very simple logo that sort of had the perfect use of negative space to make it pop off the pop off the page and it was you know tiny little black and white geometric shape um and yeah as i said it, it felt like as new as any other bit of design that i've seen recently it was probably about 50 years old we must uh, put the book in the show notes just in yeah, case. Yeah, I'm sure any design nerd out there knows exactly the one that I'm talking about. So that's <laughs> great. Thanks. Um, yeah. So will you also be naming um, something? Do you approach yes. naming it or not? We do, yeah. Um, so uh, certainly we do more design work than naming, um, but there are... Uh, mm instances where a client is either looking to rename an organization or you know creating something from scratch so um absolutely something that we do yeah. yeah so what's your approach to naming do you um does it depend on what the client wants to what extent uh, are they involved and so on mm -hmm. yeah um so again i think that uh we have a process um that we we lean on um but you've got to go into it, you know, really listening actively and, and trying to pick up on any ideas that the team might have. And, 
to be honest, and we've been through this a few times recently, we're kind of managing or, uh, you know, preempting a bit of heartbreak as well, because um, people are just not aware of the, you know, the dark art of naming an entity and um, how disappointing it can be if you've got your heart set on something and you very quickly find out that it's, it's being knocked out for, you know, all of the reasons that you're, you know, very knowledgeable about. Um, but yeah, look, I, I guess in terms of a process, we set the expectations around roles. So, you know, we let them know really quickly, we are not trademark lawyers, um, but, you know, we're, we're a creative folk and we can come up with some ideas and we've, we've got a way that we can, at least at a reasonably high level, tell you if it's, you know, the right type of thing to apply for trademark with. Um, we've got, I guess, good name anatomy <laughs> that we rely on as well. And um, I picked this up off of uh, Marty Newmeyer when I did his course a few, uh, you know, a few months, few months ago. And that's all around just, uh, you know, names should be no longer than four syllables. And you, you know, you want to make sure that it's actually enjoyable to say. Um, okay. And there's, you know, and you can own it. it doesn't mean something weird in another language. Uh, so all the usual stuff. Um, I'm doing this course in January, actually. I was curious to find out. <laughs> oh, he, he's, a, he's a fascinating individual. And yeah, um, yeah, I mean, obviously I've sort of read all of, all of his books for sort of years and, and referred to stuff. And yeah, really wonderful. I think one, one, of, the, one of the best things that he said, which really stuck, me, stuck with me as, as a you know, creative professional was, you know, once you give something a name, and I think he was talking about his own frameworks and, you know, descriptions. He said, once you give something a name, it becomes real. And yeah. if you read any of his books, you know, that he, he comes up with these fabulous names for, you know, these frameworks or diagrams that he's conceived. And um, yeah, that really stuck with me and uh, yeah. probably on subject for what we're talking about. So four syllables, um, but no more. Apparently so, yeah. But I'm sure there's plenty that break, break the rules. Um, yeah. But I think probably more than anything, it's, um, you know, nice to say, rolls off the tongue. Yeah, um, that's a good principle. Yeah, sounds nice. So uh, to what extent do you actually then discuss IP around names or the visual identity with your clients? Yeah. Um, listen, I'm, I'm going to say not enough. And I think you probably know that. And yeah, I, I know that your mission and I, I read your book um, last week, which is you know, really good and, and, and sort of taught me a lot. It's been a bit of an awakening. Mm. Um, I think that, look, we, we all know that it's there. Um, and I don't think that, you know, we're um, abandoning it too intentionally. But um, our focus, at least as creative professionals, is, is you know, the creative idea. And, and I guess trying to get that part of the job done. And I think you've heard a similar story from, you know, other people that you've spoken to. But um, mm. You know, typically um, there is a bit of a lack of understanding around what even IP means. I know, and, uh, especially among clients. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I really like the way that you, um, you described it as, you know, the expression of the idea. You know, that's what you can um, really protect. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's certainly something that we try to communicate to clients. Um, I mean, there's other stuff that we do. You know, you try... To be completely frank, you probably build the most awareness by telling a few horror stories and yeah. just trying to, you know, build a bit of urgency around, you know, their thinking on, on trademarking um, as early as possible. Yeah. Um, but there's some, you know, there's some other times where actually it's quite understandable why they're not thinking about it. And, you know, a, a part of what we do is helping clients in some cases prototype and test a business idea that's completely new. Um, and part of that prototype we've got to put together typically 
has a bit of a, a lean brand, as we call it, applied to it. Um, and it, it's remarkable how, you know, if that whole process goes successfully, how, how it can kind of snowball. And before you know it, everyone's become quite attached to this name um, that was, you know, a bit throwaway to begin with, but has actually stuck. Um, suddenly you've spent a lot of money on bringing this idea to life and, um, you know, you might have to sort of review it. And yeah, so things can slip through the net, particularly when you're running really quickly in a sort of, you know, design thinking, design sprint format. Yeah. Well, you see, I think you need to choose very carefully when you're testing the market. So if you choose something that's descriptive, that can't be trademarked, then mm. at least you can still use that as a tagline and find a name or something if it really takes off. But if there is a possibility that it could take off, applying for a trademark is not a big deal. It, actually, people can do it themselves, but it, you know, they just need to cover the one class and make sure they can use that name because the problems that it causes if you have to rebrand after something's taken off is huge, really. So yeah, that's... and I think the irony is that, you know, probably people think, oh, lawyers are expensive. We don't need to get them involved just yet. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, if you leave it too long, it's probably going to be more expensive because you're going to have to ditch a whole load of design work. This digital first uh, approach, uh, can you tell me a bit more about it? What, what does it actually mean? And how yeah, does so it think, impact brand designs in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I think, well, I think firstly, I, I understand why the word digital is used because it, you know, obviously distinguishes the screen from you know any printed collateral thing. But it's really high time that we we move forward from this idea of digital first to anything. Digital is the world that we're living in right yeah. now, and I think. Um, you know, we should just be in that mindset. I think, you know, 10 years ago, people were talking about digital transformations. That should be done by now. <laughs> and really, it's just, a, it's the same old mission of, of, of branding, which is, you know, insight, creativity, positioning, all that good stuff, just applied to where your audience are, which of course, more often than not, is in front of a screen. In fact, I think people spend about eight hours a day on average <laughs> in front of screens these days. So. Um, yeah. It makes sense to focus there, um, you know. And as I said earlier, often we're doing a branding exercise alongside a, a new website, or indeed, you know, dreaming up a new digital product. And what you have to understand is that you know the user experience is now an extension of a brand personality. Um, so you kind of need to think about everything at the same time. Um, and uh, of course, the, these last couple of crazy years that we've been through have, have forced a lot of people that. Um, I guess we're the last bunch to, to really go digital, to, to go digital. Yeah. Um, so the audiences are in front of screens and you just have to address, I guess, you know, that, that forum first. Right. So this idea of blanding, what, what is blanding? Can you talk yeah, about cool. that? <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, I mean, I love that article. I don't know if we're talking about the same one, but I remember it came up on Bloomberg or something. And it was, you know, it was actually when I was doing the, the new Maya course. So it was a real hot topic at the time. We had, you know, a Zoom call of 20, 20 brand professionals talking about it because it was um, quite divisive. But yeah, the idea is that there, there is clearly a ubiquity amongst new brands entering the market, especially in the sort of digital startup space. 
Um, and they tend to use similar color palettes, uh, similar language, um, and uh, in some cases, similar, uh, you know, very simple logos and, um, you know, brand symbols. Um, so I think that's what, that's the blending that you're talking about. Do they actually use symbols? Because I, I don't see a lot of symbols being used. It tends to be just a word mark, a very simple word mark. Yeah, I well, I think that um, I, I've probably seen, you know, a few symbols being used. I think, you know, the word icon is, is probably what I would use, particularly when you uh, and will often um, if we're producing a visual identity for a company, we, we, might, we might come up with a word mark that can be used in most instances. But if you're going to go down to a 40 by 40 pixel avatar on the top of a, you know, a LinkedIn um, profile page, uh, it, it can sometimes be sensible to collapse that into a, a little icon that even, you know, is a, a monogram or, or something that represents the brand. Yeah, yeah or initials yeah. or a letter or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes it's called a monogram. So is that the same as icon and symbol? Uh, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, those questions depend on which designer you talk to. But I think, yeah, the, the official line is uh, a monogram uh, is classically um, a small symbol made up of a couple of letters. Mm, like the Yves Saint Laurent YSL, for example. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. And that's a really interesting example, isn't it? Because, you know, I grew up with that logo being, you know, just about the trendiest shirt that you could buy when I was a kid. And um, that's now not being used so much as they've obviously gone down to that sort of blocky sans serif, Helvetica-esque Saint Laurent. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a shame because I thought that was such an iconic uh, symbol and I, I don't think they're using it so much anymore. I think that's all part of the trend towards simple, simple um, where, essentially a lot of marks are, are looking the same. Um, I, yeah, and I think um, there, there's, a, there's a functional aspect to it, clearly. Um, it's just easier to read a logo when it's at a very small size on a mobile phone. Um, so it makes sense that Google and Airbnb and Spotify and Pinterest have all gone from, you know, what were quite unique uh, mm -hmm. fonts once upon a time to just very simple sans serif marks. Yeah. So to help me understand really what simple actually means, I, I can understand the concept that for something to appear in a small form on digital, if you've got an ornate kind of logo, then you would lose the detail and it wouldn't look like itself. And therefore it's not appropriate to continue using such a sort of symbol or whatever you want to call it. So I can understand that intellectually, but I can't actually understand what the choices are that is available to um, designers, given that so many of these logos look the same. I mean, is, is the choice really so limited? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I really believe that from constraint comes creativity and I think that mm -hmm. um, certainly there are some limitations in terms of the size and as I say there's a, a functional way you've got to look at the, the design challenge of creating a logo that's probably going to be used most frequently in a small space but um, you know it's also a, a good challenge to have and um, there's I, I think this week actually I saw um, a really cool little sexual wellness company of all companies in, in Australia called 
libido, L-B-D-O. It's, um, you know, an acronym, but it actually says libido. It's really smart. And, the, you know, that's a really small, nicely condensed little logo, but they've used a, a really elegant um, serif mm-hmm. font. Um, and it's a really great example of how you can still do something that looks quite unique, even at a small size. So, yeah, I think, as I said, you know, the constraints are there and it's up to the designers to do their best within those uh, boundaries. Okay, well, I'm going to just share my screen to um, ask you an example. So this, this is the logo that I initially had, um, the Azrites. In fact, the Z was in turquoise as well. So that's a script, presumably, rather than serif or, or sans serif. Is that called a script? Yeah, I, I think that would be called a script. And it's got some really emphasized ascenders and descenders, uh, as I think they call them. And uh, someone's had some fun on the, the lowercase z as well there. Um, so it's pretty ornate as logos go. Yeah. Well, I really like that when it was designed for me and um, I just really gravitated towards it and when I was having a brand refresh I kind of expected to end up still with the same thing but something looking maybe aesthetically more pleasing than that jumble that it had ended up being Um, but then I got this uh, this um, Right. You see, John, would you like would you like me to comment on it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a totally different. So this tendency to completely scrap everything that's gone before is. I mean, I didn't know enough about branding or anything, so I just assumed that the, the designer knew everything that there was to know, and this was the right approach. Oh, right. Now a, looking a, back. What? <laughs> so that's a big mistake. Don't assume that we know anything. Well, I now know so much more than I did then because I've become interested in it. Um, yeah. But then I was, and I think most clients are totally at the mercy of whoever is branding them because they don't know what, you know, especially visual language. They assume you know what, what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Well, I think um, look, I think it's it's really easy when you look at someone else's work to become a sort of back backseat creative director, and you know after the fact to sort of comment unfairly. I think look, um, I think the designer has done a lot of understandable things. He's gone for a, a bolder, more condensed uh, word mark that probably would be more readable at smaller sizes, um, and still look fine, you know, at a large size as well. He's gone for those sort of old IBM approaches, yeah. Do you think Definitely. the other one wouldn't be readable? This, if if it was um, used, if because I say, would it not because be? Because it's a fine script font. I think that you'd find that as you shrunk it down to a really small size, you would start to lose the, the readability, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll stop the share, but because that's mainly what I wanted to understand exactly. What does simple mean and yeah. You know, most marks seem to be like my new one, you know, just a Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a trend as well. I mean, the, the sort of trendiest uh, style at the moment in the graphic design scene appears to be a sort of uh, neo-modernist, you know, desperately um, reductive 
simple look and feel, um, which is cool. And I, I love it. <laughs> I think it, it looks really great, but it does mean that you get a lot of logos and, and brand identities starting to look a bit the same. Yeah. And isn't that a problem, do you think? If, you're, if the imperative of branding is to look, stand out and not look the same as everyone else, but on the other hand, you want to be fashionable and in yeah. you know living in the time you're in I, I don't know what what's your thought well I think that um it's okay to leverage a trend and I think that you you cite um April Dunford's book actually in your book which is um you know obviously awesome it's a book about oh, yeah. positioning and um I think her positioning framework's really interesting when she um you know finishes off with is there a trend that we can leverage? And I think that's a really strategic way of, you know, as you, as you draw to a close in your positioning strategy, just looking around and saying, well, is there something that we can, you know, leverage just the right amount of so that we win people's trust very quickly, but also remain distinct? And I think that's, that's the job of the designer or, or the brand strategist is to get that balance right. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy task, but if you get it right, it, it really works for you. So do you give people uh, as a deliverable, apart from a logo, what do you give people as a minimum? For, for, yeah, oh, for, 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 a, for a brand identity. Hmm. Well, typically um, a set of brand guidelines or, or a brand book. Um, I guess one sort of uh, thing that we always try to dismantle is this notion that you need a you know a real tome of a document that you know everyone in your marketing team is going to be looking at um, and that probably just comes from us you know in other aspects of the job running really quickly and, and just trying to do the bare minimum so that we can validate an idea or, or what have you so our um, brand identities are as lean as they can be so that people people can actually start using them um, and they don't sort of gather digital dust on a server somewhere um, and no one's looking at them. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, Jenny Romaniak's work, uh, building distinctive brand assets, and then people like Mark Ritson have gone on to talk about codes that, you yeah. know, usually you might have three um, elements of a brand that you yeah. need to use consistently so that you are recognizable as yourself, but able to change it. So I'm just wondering what, apart from color and the uh, sure. logo. Yeah, so I think um, key messages, certainly. Um, so that's for the, um, the non-visual, but in yeah. terms of visual, what do you give them? Oh, okay, so in terms of visual, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, logo and you know logo will have usually have a few different ways of applying it. it you know as I said if it can fold down to an icon we might have a, a, it might be a flexible or responsive logo as we sometimes call it so they'll have a, a few things to play with there you know a set of colors um, across digital and physical obviously um, typography probably a primary and secondary font sometimes um, and then you know there might be depending on the brand other aspects of the visual identity that they they might want to include so perhaps it's a you know a set of illustrations or perhaps it's a graphic device that we've come up with that's to be used in a certain way across the brand and in different collateral um yeah they're all slightly unique um but i guess the the overarching point is we just try and make it 
as ownable and usable as, as, as possible. I, I heard a, a great quote a while ago, I can't remember who said it, but you know, it was this idea of, um, you know, there's, there's no point designing someone a Ferrari if they've only ever driven a, a Mazda before, you know? Mm. So you, you want to put together a, a set of tools and guidelines that empowers your client and allows them to consistently, you know, put that brand into the market. Yeah, I, I think for ordinary people like myself who aren't designers, that's the most challenging thing is you're mm. on social media, you're doing lots of things, how to actually have a consistent look. Um, obviously, you, you'll add your logo, maybe you will, maybe you won't be. But then how else are you going to look like yourself? And I personally think colour is the wrong thing to rely on. It can be an additional thing, but because it's so difficult to own colour, whereas something like a symbol can be owned. So I'm surprised more people don't create symbols. Really. Yeah, well, there's probably a few reasons for that. I think that... Um, Why is that? Well, I think to be, to be, to be completely honest, uh, at least for the, the vast majority of designers, you know, creating a word mark is probably quicker and simpler, um, you know, as it uh, initially at least involves using an existing font, which you may or may not manipulate to, you know, make unique. Um, sitting down and creating a mascot or, a, you know, an illustration or a symbol um, perhaps is, is, is slightly more work and perhaps probably a controversial view, provide, you know, requires, a, you know, slightly more skill, at least in the illustrative sense, um, because you've got to be able to come up with something that's executed really well. Um, so that might be the reason that people shy away from it, potentially. Uh, and what do you think of my, um, the one I've created for my, for my brand there? I mean, I just had to do it myself because the designer I engaged, a different one, couldn't come up with any ideas. And I really wanted a visual hammer. So I yeah. came up with that. Do you think that's not easy to use? Or does it look old fashioned? What do you think? <laughs> so just to clarify, so when you say you came up with it yourself, did you design it yourself or did you work with a designer? Oh, no, I, I had a very talented designer, but she wasn't kind of my branding, brand identity designer yeah. that I'd engaged. She was actually very, very low cost, but yeah. talented. And when that didn't work out with the designer, um, I asked her if she could come up with some sort of RAM for me to use, and she created that, and I yeah. liked it. Well, I think she's nailed it, and I've, I've read the story behind the RAM, and it makes sense. And uh, um, I know that you've also got an owl in the yeah. mix in other aspects of your life, which yeah, I thought was interesting. That too. So, yeah, because the, the owl's in um, Jenny Romaniuk's book. I thought that was uh, Yeah, they chose one too. I, it was just coincidence that I chose an owl. I thought it was very fitting, but oh. no, look, honestly, execution-wise, this is great. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. you know the first rule of I think good logo design in most people's minds is it works in two colours or black and white, and yeah. you know, this clearly does. Um, and I should imagine works at a small size and at a big size, so you're you're already winning. Okay, that's funny because she costs next to nothing, whereas the designer I paid a lot of money to wasn't able to come up with anything so it's obviously it's not you don't get what you pay for necessarily well I don't know I mean there's that famous Paula Scher quote which perhaps she borrowed from Van Gogh actually which is you know it, it might have taken me five minutes to do but you know I've been in the business for 20 years to be able to yeah. do it in five minutes so 
yeah, I think it all depends who you're working with there. Um, yeah. Well, this designer is quite young and, you know, maybe has three years experience. Um, she's well, then she's, uh, she's doing well so far, I'd say. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, yeah, I'm really interested to have discussed this. Uh, just to finish, there's one question I have for you, which mm. is, I guess, around what a brand means. But what do you think is the single most important thing a business needs to focus on and not lose sight on in order to build the brand that they want to build? I didn't forewarn you of this. So. No, it's, it's the, the, the single most important thing. Um, well, you know, the, the word consistency gets banded around a lot. Um, and I think uh, there's obviously some things that you have to do so that you can be consistent, mm -hmm. but um, providing you've equipped yourself with, you know, the right brand assets, distinctive brand assets, um, you know, I would, I would argue that in order to really build those memory structures and to really sort of, you know, get that mental availability that we're all clamoring for, um, it's about saying the same thing and doing the same thing over and over again in as many places as possible. So <laughs> I would argue that consistency would, would have to be up there, if not the most important. Great. Okay, thank you very much indeed, uh, Nick. It's been great having you on the podcast. No problem at all. If you enjoyed this episode, please do tell a couple of people about it and sign up to the Brandtune newsletter over at brandtune.com. The link is in the show notes. Thank you and bye. <laughs>